Welcome to Primary Cast, your unofficial study group for the ASIM primary exam. I'm Charlotte Durand and I'm your host and each episode I'm joined by a special guest to cover some of the core content for the ASIM primary exam. All of the study notes and the transcripts are available online at asimprimarypodcast.com. And while you're there, don't forget that you can donate to support the podcast through the buy me a coffee icon and you can leave any feedback, questions, comments on the website. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported the podcast in any way that they can. I really appreciate it. It helps me keep it online and open access. Today's episode is GI Metabolism Physiology with Dr. Lou Gabor. For those of you who don't know Lou, she is currently an ED reg who is working in a retrieval role with CareFlight while studying for her fellowship. Outside of her studies and work, she is a roller skater extraordinaire (laughs) and has also recently signed up to compete in the state skipping competition. So she has many skills and many talents. Thank you so much, Lou, for coming on the podcast. Anytime. Glad to be here. So what we're going to do is today we're talking about GIT metabolism uh, physiology, which another riveting topic Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) for the podcast to cover. Uh, You're doing fellowship study at the moment, so quite a way away from uh, this topic. Uh, Do you remember studying it? I do. I remember going through the chapter many, many times uh, in the lead up. Yeah. I, as I was going preparing the notes for this topic, I realized that I actually have forgotten almost all of the content. So uh, for the listeners today, all of this is not from the top of our head. This is definitely <laughs> reading from the script. So um, don't don't fret if you don't know all the details. What we're going to do is start off with gastric secretion. Lou, what factors regulate gastric secretion? Well, I like to remember this in the order of what happens as you eat food because I find that easier to remember starting with the cephalic phase. So it's mediated via the vagus nerve, where the sight, smell, or taste of food excites the vagus nuclei, which then excites the parasympathetic neurons in the stomach that release acetylcholine onto parietal cells to stimulate secretion. Vagal efferents also stimulate gastrin release from G cells. Moving on to the gastric phase, food in the stomach triggers local receptors, which activate postganglionic neurons. These neurons stimulate parietal cells to produce acid. Finally, the intestinal phase. Fats, carbohydrates, and acid in the duodenum inhibit gastric acid secretion and pepsin secretion, as well as motility by neural and hormonal mechanisms. And what does the parietal cell do? Okay, parietal cells are stimulated by histamine from ECL cells and gastrin from G cells, as well as vagal efferents. The hydrogen ions are pumped out by the HK ATPase and chloride ions followed to combine with hydrogen ions in the lumen. Okay, Charlotte, it's time for digestion of carbohydrates. Describe the enzymes required for the digestion of carbohydrates and their location. So in the mouth, there is salivary amylase. In the duodenum, there is pancreatic amylase. In the brush border of the small intestine, there are oligosaccharidases such as lactase, sucrase, maltase, and isomaltase. And the final oligosaccharides are metabolized to one of the final hexoses, so glucose or fructose, within the small intestine. Nice. Please describe how carbohydrates are absorbed from the GI tract. 
So this occurs in two phases. First, they get absorbed into the mucosal cell from the lumen and then into the ECF uh, and blood from the cell. So glucose and galactose undergo secondary active transport with sodium via SGLT1 and SGLT2 co-transporters. A low concentration of sodium will inhibit transport via this mechanism. Glucose and galactose can also go via facilitated diffusion into the cells via GLUT2. Fructose can go via facilitated diffusion into the cell via GLUT5 and then goes via GLUT2 back into the blood. So the next question is about the digestion and absorption of lipids. Can you please describe the enzymes required for the digestion of lipids and their location? Sure. So starting with the lingual lipase, it's active in the stomach on triglycerides. Then we've got pancreatic lipase that requires co-lipase for maximal activity and acts on triglycerides. Pancreatic bile salt activated lipase acts on triglycerides, cholesterol esters, some vitamins and phospholipids. And finally, cholesterol ester hydrolase. What other process, aside from enzyme activity, is involved in the digestion of lipids? There's three things. Emulsification. Uh, micelle formation, these are formed from bile salts, lecithin, and monoglycerides surrounding fatty acids and cholesterol. And then transport of lipids through the unstirred layer to the brush border of mucosal cells. Please describe how lipids are absorbed through the GI tract. Um, so there are two phases. In the first phase, lipids go into the intestinal mucosal cell, and in the second phase, into the interstitial fluid, and thus into the capillaries and portal blood as free fatty acids or into the lymphatics as chylomicrons. They move into the enterocytes via passive diffusion and carriers. They move out of the enterocytes into the interstitial fluids, depending on their size. If they're less than 12 carbons, they go directly into the portal blood, or if they're greater than 12 carbons, they are re-esterified to triglycerides or cholesterol esters and packaged into chylomicrons. time for protein digestion. Describe the enzymes required for digestion of protein in the gastrointestinal tract and their location. In the stomach, pepsinogens are activated by a gastric acid to produce pepsins, and these cleave the bond between amino acids to yield polypeptides. Then in the small intestine, proteins are digested by powerful proteolytic enzymes from the pancreas and the intestinal mucosa. These include endopeptidases, such as chymotrypsin, trypsin, and elastase, and these recognize specific amino acids in the middle of the peptide, and exopeptidases, which yield amino acids. So they're the ones that recognize and act on the terminal amino acids. So exo is the end or the outsides, and then endo is on the inside, so the middle of the polypeptide. Then at the brush border, the amino carboxy, endo, and dipeptidases cleave peptides into amino acids. Okay, how are proteins absorbed from the GI tract? So again, similar to the uh, lipids and the carbohydrates, this occurs in two phases. The first phase being into the mucosal cell and the second phase being into the interstitial fluid onward to the capillaries and the portal blood. There are seven transport systems for moving amino acids into the enterocytes. Five of these require sodium co-transport, and there are two sodium-independent transporters. 
absorption of protein is rapid in the duodenum and the jejunum and then slow in the ileum. How does protein absorption and digestion differ in infants and young children compared to adults? This question gets asked a lot uh, and is really important to know the answer to. Uh, and that is that infants absorb more undigested protein, which results in passive immunity via the absorption of antibodies from the maternal system. However, this also results in more food allergies in this age group. Oh, my God, I never knew that. It's yeah, interesting, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> there we go. Passive immunity. wonders. <laughs> So moving on to a question about glucose, what factors influence glucose homeostasis? Um, Okay, so glucose absorption from the intestine, uptake from the periphery, that's muscle, fat, brain, red blood cells and liver, reabsorption in the kidney and gluconeogenesis in the liver, which is determined by the actions of insulin and glucagon. And what happens to glucose homeostasis in the absence of insulin? We get hyperglycemia due to a number of factors. These are decreased peripheral uptake of glucose into muscles and fats, reduced glucose uptake by the liver, and increased glucose output by the liver and lack of glycogen synthesis. The intake of glucose by the brain, GIT, kidney and red blood cells remains unchanged. By what mechanism does glucose cause the release of insulin? It's taken up by specific GLUT2 transporters in beta cells of the pancreas. Uh, Glucose is converted to pyruvate, then metabolized to glutamate via the citric acid cycle, which primes insulin granules for release. Production of ATP triggers via potassium efflux, a calcium influx, which causes the granules to be released. So now it's time for iron, and I'm just warning you, this definitely came up in my exam. How is iron absorbed from the GIT? So in the stomach, gastric acid causes a reduction of the ferric form, which is Fe3+, to the ferrous form, which is Fe2+, and the formation of soluble complexes. The duodenum is the major site of absorption. Fe3+, the ferric form, is converted to Fe2+, the ferrous form, by ferric reductase. Fe2+, is then transported into enterocytes via the apical membrane iron transporter, which is DMT1. Dietary heme is transported into the enterocytes by a heme transporter. Heme oxidase releases the ferrous form from heme, Some intracellular ferrous iron is converted to the ferric form, Fe3+, and bound to ferritin. The remainder binds to a basolateral Fe2+, transporter called ferroportin and is transported to the interstitial fluid aided by hephaestin, which is HP. Then it is converted to the ferric form and bound to transferrin. What factors reduce iron absorption from the GIT? So these include dietary factors, surgical factors, physiological factors, and drugs. In dietary factors, there are phytic acids in cereals, oxalates, and phosphates that bind to iron to produce insoluble compounds. In surgical factors, these include partial gastrectomy via the reduction of gastric acid, and then duodenal surgery or illness such as ulcers 
because they reduce the potential site of absorption. Physiological factors include already high iron stores, a recent high iron diet, and the degree of erythropoiesis, which is happening at the time. Drugs include antacids. Okay, I'm sure I had this question in my exam. <clears throat> How is iron transported? So the free form, the ferrous form, is transported bound to transferrin. I always imagine this is so weird, but when I was in medical school and I was learning this, <laughs> I always imagined, and this is relevant for you, Okay. I always imagined that transferrin was like, I don't know why I thought this, but I always imagined it was like a little ferret on roller skates. <laughs> it was tra- <laughs> a little ferret on roller skates that would transfer yeah. all of the iron around. That's and cute. Just, that's all I can see now. That's yeah. all I imagine is transferrin is this little <laughs> ferret on roller skates. Anyway, just welcome to the yeah weird, the wonderful, the wonderful weird, world of your mind. Weirdness in my brain while studying for exams. <laughs> God, you really just lose it, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I'm there. I'm there. I'm six months <laughs> out and I'm already there. Okay, so now we're going to talk about calcium. Lou, how does the body regulate plasma calcium? Okay, so this works via a feedback loop. 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol, and you can't make me say that again, so from now on it's 125-DHCC, from vitamin D, increases calcium absorption in the GIT and kidneys. PTH mobilizes calcium from the bone, increases calcium resorption in the kidneys, and increased 125-DHCC in the kidneys. Calcitonin from the thyroid inhibits bone resorption, increases calcium excretion in the urine. And how is the synthesis of 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol regulated? Okay, now you're showing off. (laughs) I just Uh, get one. We get one each, and then we go back. 125-DHCC is formed in the kidneys by 1-alpha-hydroxylase. Low calcium increases PTH, which stimulates 1-alpha-hydroxylase and increases 125-DHCC formation. Low phosphate directly stimulates 1-alpha-hydroxylase. And finally, high calcium and high phosphate inhibits 125-DHCC, increasing the inactive form 24-25-DHCC instead. Moving on now to water and electrolytes. Explain the mechanisms of absorption and secretion of water and electrolytes in the GIT. After meals, fluid is taken up due to the coupled transport of nutrients, for example, glucose and water together. Between meals, sodium chloride enters across the apical membrane via the coupled activity of the sodium hydrogen exchanger and a chloride bicarb exchanger. In the distal colon, sodium enters the epithelial cells via epithelial sodium channels, the ENAC channels, which is electrogenic. In terms of secretion, chloride secretion occurs continuously in the small intestine and the colon. Chloride uptake occurs via the sodium-potassium-2-chloride co-transporter and is secreted into the lumen via chloride channels. These are the CFTR or the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator channels. Water endogenous secretions is a total of approximately 7 litres per day. Now remember, there's also intake as well, which is about 2 litres a day. And then the amount reabsorbed in total is 8.8 litres a day. The balance from this is released in the stools, and that's about 200 mils. 
So the next question is about the exocrine pancreas. Can you please list the enzymes secreted from the exocrine pancreas and give at least three examples of the substrates that these enzymes work on? Okay, so this is a long list, um, but fortunately the names are logical. Starting with trypsin, it acts on proteins and polypeptides. Chemotrypsins, protein and polypeptides. Elastase, elastin and some proteins. Carboxypeptidase, A and B, proteins and polypeptidases. Colipase, fat droplets. Pancreatic lipase, axon triglycerides. Bile salt lipase, axon cholesterol esters. Pancreatic alpha amylase, axon starch. Ribonuclease, axon RNA. Deoxyribonuclease, axon DNA. And phospholipase A2, axon phospholipids. Can you please describe the regulation of pancreatic juice secretion? Mmm, yum. <laughs> Primarily under hormonal control, secretin acts on the duct to cause production of copious amounts of alkaline pancreatic juice, which is poor in enzymes. It exerts effects via CAMP. It also stimulates bile secretion. As the flow of pancreatic juice increases, it becomes even more alkaline because of the exchange of bicarb for chloride in the distal duct and is inversely proportional to flow. Cholecystokinin acts on acinar cells to cause release of zymogen granules and pancreatic juice rich in enzymes. It also relaxes the sphincter of Oddi. It's secreted by eye cells in the mucosa of the upper small intestine. Acetylcholine, which is the rest and digest transmitter, also stimulates the release of zymogen granules. Acetylcholine is also involved in vagal nerve-mediated pancreatic secretion via the sight and smell of food. Can you please describe the composition of pancreatic juice? Sure. We've got cations, anions, bicarb, and digestive enzymes released as proenzymes, which are activated by the brush border enzymes. And this is a bonus question um, because it's not in a previous viva, but it has been in the MCQ. And that is, can you please tell me which hormone is secreted by delta cells of the pancreas? Uh, that is somatostatin. It has a half-life of three minutes, stimulated by food intake. It decreases the motility of the upper GIT, reduces the secretion and absorption of the GIT, and inhibits glucagon and insulin release by the pancreas. It extends the period of time over which the food nutrients can be absorbed from the GIT into blood and inhibits growth hormone, which is where the name comes from. Charlotte, it's time for the liver. It's a big topic and unfortunately it's high yield. List the principal functions of the liver. So these include bile formation of approximately 500 mls per day, synthetic function of the liver, which is making proteins, coagulation factors, albumin, inactivation or detoxification, uh, and that is of drugs, toxins, and other circulating substances. Uh, there is also control of metabolism and absorption of certain nutrients and vitamins such as amino acids, lipids and fat soluble vitamins in particular and it also has an immune function especially against gut organisms via the I don't even know how do you say that kupfer kupfer cells the one yeah, starting with k it, big, isn't it k u p f f e r oh, maybe it is kupfer Kup yeah it is there you go kupfer cells <laughs> 
Oh, Lord. The big <laughs> macrophages in the liver, anyway, that are called the things starting with K. Um, <laughs> so immune function against gut organisms um, via the Kupfer cells and macrophages in the sinusoidal epithelium. How is bilirubin produced in the body? Uh, so this is formed by the breakdown of heme from hemoglobin. Heme is converted to biliverdin and then on to bilirubin. How is bilirubin metabolized? So bilirubin is bound to albumin in the circulation. It dissociates in the liver and then free bilirubin enters the liver cells via the OATP or the organic anion transport polypeptide. It is conjugated within the liver cells by glucuronyl transferase, which is in the smooth endoplasmic reticulum, and it's converted to bilirubin diglucuronide, which is the water-soluble form. The soluble form is then transported against the gradient into the bile canaliculi and then into the intestine. There are small amounts, so less than 5%, which leak back into the blood during this stage. Intestinal bacteria then acts on this bilirubin diglucuronide to convert it mostly into urobilinogens and unconjugated bilirubin, which is then excreted by the gut. Some bile pigments in urobilinogen and unconjugated bilirubin are reabsorbed into the portal circulation, where most are then re-secreted, and this is what is referred to as the enterohepatic circulation. Small amounts of urobilinogen are excreted in the urine and stercobilin is what is excreted in the feces. Lastly, describe the composition of bile. So bile is 97% water. Uh, the other 3% includes bile pigments, which are conjugated bilirubin and biliverdin, bile salts, which include cholic acid, chinodeoxycholic acid, deoxycholic acid, and lithocholic acid. There are inorganic salts and then other things like cholesterol, fatty acids, and lecithin. That is done. Thank you very much for joining me for an episode on our riveting topic of GI metabolism physiology. Just before we go, what I like to do at the end of each episode is ask people for their advice or words of wisdom or things you learnt the hard way, anything that you would say to people who are currently studying and preparing for their primary exam. Yeah, sure. Um, so for the written, my advice would be when you're feeling exhausted and just like you can't do anything else, but you've got time, sit down, do some NCQs. Um, I found that was always a high yield way to study. And for the Viva, my advice is for every question, don't just jump into it. Stop, have a think, take a deep breath. It'll save you time in the long run. Mm, that's very wise words. Thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs> and thank you for joining me. Anytime. Yay. Oh, there was a lot of long words in that last yeah, one. Yeah, it really is. Because I just stopped listening to you. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> sorry. I knew that was going to happen. Recording a podcast in, in this the very professional studio. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Would you do, ever do this again? The exam or the podcast? The podcast. Like a thin monoglycis. That's what I don't tell you is there's so many hard words to say in here. I feel like people would identify with that mental state. Thank you. Finally a win. <laughs>